Welcome to the Series B Show. I'm your host, Brandon Jones. This is part two of a three-part episode with John W. Thompson. In episode one, John discussed his upbringing, his influences as a kid, his parents, and how he got so competitive. In part two, he'll discuss specifically his rise up through IBM's ranks, including how he got people to take him under their wing and invest in his success at the company, building a network of people that were strong supporters of him, I'm learning to adapt successfully to the corporate environment and, and playing the field, so to speak. He also discusses a little bit around how he rose up through the leadership ranks and the personal challenges he faced along the way uh, as he focused on his career. So hope you enjoy. You've always found someone who has taken you under their wing in some kind of aspect. What's the secret to that for, for folks who, who feel like it's not as easy for them? Is it performance? Is it the ability to really connect on a human level outside of work? What are, you, you have this innate ability to get people to really believe in you and say, hey, I want you to be my understudy. Yeah, well, I think um, performance always matters. Um, it, it is always about people believing that if they give you a shot, that you will produce equal to or better than their expectations. But on top of that, there's got to be, uh, let's just say, cultural and attitudinal alignment. Because even if you perform well, if you're a butthole in mm -hmm. your behavior, you're not going to get people to want to mentor or coach you, if right. you will, along the way. And so accepting the, the culture of IBM was a really hard thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, I just, it took me years before I cut my afro. It took me years before mm -hmm. I shaved off my mustache. Mm -hmm. It took me years before I bought something other than a polyester suit. <laughs> um, but when I got to Boston and Paul Palmer said, come with me, stick with me, kid. In that environment, by the way. In that environment. And I became the new Brooks Brothers model. I threw away all the crap I had mm -hmm. in my closet. I went to Brooks Brothers, bought all the crap that IBMers wore, the right. tassel loafers and the white button-down shirts and right. the blue suits and red and white ties and all that crap. And all of a sudden, the only thing that could distinguish me from someone else was my performance. Mm -hmm. Not how I look. Yes, I right. had a different skin hue. Right. But that was the only thing that could separate me from someone else. And so what I didn't want was people to say, gee, he performs well, but he's not culturally aligned. So performing well and being culturally aligned with the company's value system and what have you was a very, very important element in the early success I had in my career. Fluency. Do you think that, because some people you know, would make the argument that in today's world, bring yourself to work is kind of the, the way to go, right? Where you know, we're going to embrace who you are. The reality of the situation is there is some level of assimilation needs to happen in the workplace for many people. Do you think that your ability to really kind of ingrain yourself in the culture was something that you consider to be an innate skill, or do you think it's more learned? Yes. And or, <laughs> and or tolerance yeah. for doing such. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I think you make mistakes and you learn from those mistakes. Um, 
I made mistakes in my first management job that fortunately didn't cost my career, but certainly cost me a step along the mm. way. Um, and those mistakes had more to do with me not listening as much as I was talking. And, and I think one of the most important things young leaders have to learn to do is listen more than they talk. And too often when we get that first management job, we think we have achieved everything and we want to show people what we know. And you're still the first step on the ladder right. and you need to learn a lot more. So you better use your ears more than you use your mouth. And I think that was an important learning experience for me coming out of my first management job in Atlanta, Georgia. The second thing that stood out to me about the value of getting your MBA at MIT was this international element of, I guess, exposure mm -hmm. in business, which I'm sure is valuable for a global company like IBM. What other things can you say about the business school experience, specifically addressing what you learn on the academic side versus the relationships, the exposure, and or anything that kind of honed your sales skill set? Well, the MIT experience didn't have much to do at all with honing my sales experience. Um, it was much more mathematically and statistically driven. So uh, lots of uh, economics, lots of business process, you know, lots of things that were about trying to teach you how to be a leader or to be a manager, if you will, of a larger organization. Not how to be a good salesperson or something like that at all. Um, and because I had the benefit of um, uh, my friend from Kodak or my friends from AT&T or my friend from Union Railway, uh, Union Pacific Railway, mm -hmm. um, I got to listen to their point of view about their companies and how those organizations worked, juxtaposition to what IBM was like, right. juxtaposition to what we were being taught about right. Right. management philosophy and practices there at the MIT Sloan School. And, and I think that was very much a formative period, quite frankly, in my management career, because right. it was pretty early in the management process. I had just finished my first second-line manager job, and uh, that said, I had to manage managers, right. and that was a very different experience than managing people who were selling right. key punches and typewriters and right. all those things right. in those right. days. So you said one year. Was the, was the business school program? It, it, was, it was only one year, one year at that yeah. point. Okay. So it was called the MIT Sloan Fellows Program. Got so it. it was a special curriculum that was 12 months in duration. So you started in June and went until May, and man, you worked your butt off. <laughs> it was, I mean... Rigorous. It was one of the most intense years I've ever had. So you come back into IBM. How old are you at this point when you graduated from this fellows program? I'd say it's 32, maybe. Okay. 32, 33. Now, were you, you know, kind of brought into a new challenge or did you go back into kind of business as usual? Yeah. So I went back to a role as the director of sales for the Northeast. So I had all product sales and the... Uh, marketing campaigns and marketing programs and stuff like that. And At I this did point, that. You, you definitely have been identified as a, as a yeah. shooting star. Yeah. Well, 
Within IBM. A rising star. A rising star. I wouldn't say a shooting star. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, just the fact that I had gone, been selected to go to MIT said, was, said, you know, said something in and of itself. Uh, but I did this job for about a year. And then a very unusual opportunity came along. The CEO of IBM at that time who had chosen me to go to MIT was John Opel. Mm -hmm. And John Opel was retiring and he was making the transition to a guy named John Akers. And so I got the call one day that says, we would like for you to help manage the office transition from Opel to Akers. And so I packed up from Boston and moved to Connecticut and worked in Armonk, where for the first four to six months, my job was to make sure the mail landed in the right place, <laughs> uh, that Opal's letters didn't go to John Akers and Akers' letters didn't go to John Opal and you know all right. that crap. Um, and then I got the next really interesting opportunity where I was assigned as the chief of staff to the vice chairman of the board. Wow. Uh, a guy named Paul Rizzo, who ended up being the next most important mentor, if you will, in my career. And Paul was one of those guys who probably should have been the CEO of IBM. But for a variety of reasons, he didn't have the, the profile. He was a gruff, tough, hard-nosed guy. But for all intents and purposes, uh, he was a finance guy and understood products very well and managed a significant portion of the business. And working for him for about a year as his chief of staff was a very, very insightful, informative experience because yeah. I got to sit through most, if not all, of the business reviews and right. business meetings that he would have and see how he would probe and ask questions. And sometimes he would come out of the meeting and tell me, well, that was complete bullshit, right? right? right. Uh, as opposed to uh, saying something positive about someone and what they were doing. And Your real-world MBA, so to speak, at exactly. IBM was, exactly. was that period. Uh, that's a great way to describe it, quite frankly. Um, but after that year, the company went through a massive, massive restructuring. Um, and I thought my next job was to be a regional manager. And I get the call that says, we want you to go to New York City to be the regional director of marketing or regional director of sales, which was the same job I had had before I'd taken the role in the corporate office. And so I had to have a conversation with both Paul Rizzo and John Akers that says, are you telling me I failed? Right. And the answer is, no, 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 no. We've gone through a restructure. We've got all these guys and we're going from, you know, four divisions to one. And, you know, we got people that we have to place. Just, just Hold on stay cool. Just stay cool. And so I ended up moving job locations to New York City, and I hated it. The you hated New York City? The commute was horrible, because to go from Stanford, Connecticut to New York right. was an hour to an hour and 15 minutes mm -hmm. one way. And the guy I worked for was an absolute jerk. And I had always, up until then, had bosses that I aspired to be like, mm -hmm. that... Uh, I was learning things from them. I was, uh, I had an admiration for their 
career success and the way they led and the way they managed people and managed the business. Well, this guy in my mind was a complete jerk. Now, some of that was probably me being angry that I didn't have the job, Mm -hmm. but some of that was also him. And after about a year, I picked up the phone and I called my friend Paul Rizzo and said, I've decided I'm going to leave the company. And he said, really? I said, yes. He says, why is that? I said, because I'm not learning anything and I'm not having any fun. Well, 24 hours later, I had a new job. (laughs) And I had my first product management job. So define what that means in context of IBM. What that meant in IBM back in those days was you had product divisions that would uh, envision what the product needed to be, what market opportunity needed to be served. And those product organizations would shape not just the design of the product, not so much the technical design, but the the, the market design, if you will, of the product, and would influence greatly the marketing message around the product as it was released. And so for the first time in my career, I was outside of sales into something that I didn't know anything about. I didn't know much about marketing. I knew things about sales, but not about marketing. And I certainly didn't know things about product management, which was trying to assess How big is the market opportunity? Uh, Where does this product capability fit relative to that opportunity? I mean, that was a very, very important and formative change. And And not too different from how we define it even today what a product manager role is, which is basically a mini CEO of the product, so to speak. Well, it varies by company because Microsoft doesn't define it the same way as Google might define it. So... It, it varies by how companies choose to use that role. Um, at Symantec, when I was there, uh, product management was less important than the division president. Mm. And the division president had product managers that worked for him or her, but the division president was the one that was, quote, the mini-CEO, if you will. So now you're in this role, this, yeah. this product manager role. You've been in sales for, at this point, a decade at least, it sounds like. Oh, yeah, like. at least, yeah. What do you do? Well, I have to admit, I struggled for the first six months because I really, I didn't have a clue what I was supposed to be doing. And there were two people who were pretty influential at that point for me. One was a lady named Ellen Hancock, who was at the time the highest ranking female in IBM. And Ellen ended up leaving IBM and doing a bunch of stuff out here in the Valley. And the other person was the guy who was the CFO to Ellen. And he would come into my office once a week and just sit down and say, how you doing? I don't know if he was worried about me or cared about me or what, but he had this view that I just want to know how you're doing. And it was that linkage that kept me going because I was like, this is the most bizarre job I've ever had in my life. Um, And I did it for probably 15 or 18 months. And then one day I get a call from um, a guy named Frank Metz, who was the CFO of IBM. And he says... um, John, this is Frank. And I'm like, hey, Frank, how are you? How you doing? You know, why are you calling me? 
He says, well, we're going through another major reorganization, and I've got a job I want you to do for me. And I'm thinking, is the CFO calling me? Right. Want me to do a job? And they were consolidating all of the product planning and product forecasting globally into one leadership role. Mm. And he offered me that job. Wow. What conversations happened, you think, behind the scenes that led to him calling you, of everyone there, top performers, you know, everyone who they felt could do the job. But what do you think kind of behind the scenes happened to lead to that moment where he picks up the phone and says, I want you? Well, I look, by then, I had a, a reputation of decent performance in most, if not every job I had had along the way. And I had built a network of people who were supporters of John Thompson. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if Paul Rizzo didn't kind of call him and say, look, this is a developmental job. I mean, and this is a kid who we think has potential to Mm -hmm. do more. And so why wouldn't we give him this developmental opportunity to see the finance side of the company in a very, very different way than he's ever seen it before. Because, you know, I was making product planning decisions. I was making inventory resource allocation decisions. I was making revenue and profit decisions as we were planning, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, at product level uh, across the entire company. It was a Quite an amazing experience. I I love the job. Uh, And what was the specific title of the role? Assistant General Manager of Business Planning. Reported to the CFO? Reported to the CFO of the... That business. Of the U.S. business. But I had this unique U.S. and global responsibility. So I did U.S. global supply-demand planning. Hmm. So it was kind of a, a foot in two camps, if you will. Let's talk about this networking for a minute. You built a nice stable of advocates who are fans of John Thompson. This is the holy grail of what people like to be able to create, but many people fall short. Performance, a must. What other ingredients do you think contribute to you being able to build like this strong base of advocates? In a nutshell, kind of what are some of the best practices that you say people, 90% of people don't do that you did to be able to create that level of well, I, I don't, I don't know that ninety percent of the people don't do it. I, okay. I think what's what's really important if you're going to build a, a network, particularly inside a big company, is to have people that one have confidence in you, not just in your performance, but in your moral compass. Is your moral compass aligned the way the company is, the way we expect a leader to be aligned? And if you are, then you get to move to the next step. And that next step is about uh, can you lead? Um, Can you be inspirational and encouraging to the teams that are a part of your organization? And if you can, that leads to the next step, which is the opportunity to manage bigger and bigger and bigger teams. And for me, each step along the way was um, enlightening because I, I ended up getting you know bigger and bigger and bigger teams. Right. Uh, when I ultimately finished the 
AGM a business planning job, my next job was to run the Midwest for IBM. It was the second largest of the U.S. geographies that was a mess, just a complete mess. And when I got there, I had 9,000 people. That was 1990. This is a big deal. This is a really, really, this is big, a really deal. big deal. Yeah. And when I left, I had 4,150 people. Wow. So we had gone through a massive, massive, massive restructuring of the company. And one of the things I was always willing to do was take a risk to do something that would change the outcome of how the business was performing. And we created a model while I was running the Midwest for IBM that became the model for the whole company's Mm -hmm. field organization. So rather than having dedicated people, dedicated to accounts, we specialized people in products and services and software and had a really, really small number of people who were industry specialists, Mm -hmm. who would lead the charge, if you will, with the customer day in and day out. And depending upon what the opportunity was in that account, they would call in the product specialists to support them day in and day out. That model uh, became known as the Chicago model. And Lou Gerstner joined in April of 1993. Uh, I had launched a model in January of 93. Uh, All of the product executives loved it because they now had dedicated people focused on their products. I mean, we had so damn many products back then that the product guys were always uncomfortable that they never really knew who was selling their stuff. And so this gave them clear line of sight to who was selling mainframes and AS400s and all of the crap that the company had at that time. Well, in September or October of that year, I get the call from my boss who runs the Americas that says, um, Lou would like to talk to you. And I went, okay, about what? And he says, well, he wants you to take a new job. I said, well, what new job? He says, well, we'd like for you to be the head of marketing for the U.S. business. I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so Is I- Is that because you, the P&L? <clears throat> no, it was because I, I loved Chicago. And I had been told uh, when I took the job there that- If I did a good job, I could stay for at least five years because I got tired of moving around all the time. And if I did a good job, I would get to be a corporate vice president. And that was kind of the, that was the big title in IBM back in those days. And I felt that I had done a good job and I had not gotten that level of recognition. So two things before we go there. We definitely will go there for sure. Something you said that was interesting was when you got the role in the Midwest, which was a mess when you got it, you decided you were going to take a risk. You mentioned that you're going to look at things differently and implement some some new way of thinking about things, which is a risk. What was your rationale there? I think a lot of people oftentimes play it safe because they don't want to deal with a bad outcome or the negative outcome. How were you thinking about at that point in time, like this idea of a radical change in strategy or a reorganization? Did you look at it like, hey, I'm making my mark either way and I can, I can justify that? Or Well, my view was that what we were doing wasn't working. Uh, every year we were laying off 500 to 1,200 people. And so we were changing the interface between the company and our customers every six months. And that approach just was not working because of the nature of the way we presented ourselves to our customers. 
because the notion was I had dedicated teams supporting Sears and Allstate and State Farm. And these dedicated teams had people who, quite frankly, I didn't think were all fully productive because there wasn't always a hot opportunity at Sears or at State Farm. And that resource could have been used somewhere else as opposed to being dedicated to that account. So by turning the pillars upside down, it allowed me to redeploy the resource in a way that was far more productive for the company. And my view was, if you're not willing to take a risk, you're never going to be a noteworthy leader in any organization, quite frankly. So thus, the Chicago model was born, and, and I'm sure utilized across the company, but also for you, that was another step in your leadership. Sure. Even before I go on to this, the next move, one other thing that you kind of mentioned that I want to double-click on was you wanted at least five years in Chicago because you'd been moving around too much. So I want to understand, what was your personal life like during this kind of whirlwind upward trajectory within IBM? What were some of the sacrifices? Like, were you 100% career focused? Just talk a little bit about that time in your life from a personal perspective. Yeah, well, I had gone through a divorce and was working my butt off because I wanted to make sure that I could support all of the commitments that I had made at that point in time. And my time in Chicago was very much about proving to the world, proving to the IBM team that I could lead a big organization because I knew that if I could prove that I could lead an organization of nine and 10,000 people, then I'd have a shot someday at running a division in IBM, much less a shot someday at perhaps running the whole company. And, and so taking a risk and performing well against that risk that you decided to take was a very, very important thing for me. I thought if I couldn't stay in Chicago that with IBM that there were other opportunities in Chicago as well because I had met many, many local business leaders who had become friends of mine, one of which was the CEO of the local telephone company, Ameritech. And so I called Dick Notabart, and he offered me a job immediately. Um, and I called IBM and told him I quit. And then Paul Rizzo, who had been brought back into IBM, he had retired, had been brought back into IBM to help coach the new CEO, Lou Gerstner. Um, Paul called me immediately and says, come see me. So I get on a plane and I fly back to New York, and he convinces me that uh, I shouldn't quit, that I shouldn't give up quite so soon, that while I didn't like Lou Kirshner, and he knew I didn't like Lou, that Lou had a lot of respect for me for the risks that I'd taken and the results I'd produced, so on and so forth. So I decided to stay. So I take the job in um, marketing for the U.S. business. And then about six months later, I end up in a job running developer programs for all of our products. And then about nine months to a year later, I ended up running the desktop Windows Server software business, uh, or at least the x86 server software business. Uh, there was no real Windows at that <laughs> point in time. Right. Um, and then from there, I ended up running IBM US and then IBM Americas. And so I went through a series of jobs about four or five jobs over a six-year period to where my last role at IBM was I had about 37,000 people working for me. Wow. 
They had about a $35 billion revenue target, which represented about 45% of the company's revenue and about 65% of its profits. You wanted the VP role. You ultimately got a role that I asked. I, I, I ultimately did get it. Right. So once I got right. to be the... Right. So it was like additional steps that they felt you needed to make to get well, to that point? Well, no, or? what happened was Lou Gershner came in and he had a different view of the world. And so the way the world had been defined in the old regime was different than the way Lou wanted to define the world. And so when Paul told me, just relax, just trust me, it's all going to work out, that's when I decided, okay, I trust Paul because right. Paul trusts me. And so I decided to stay, and I took the job as the head of marketing, and within a few months I got the corporate vice president title. Yeah. and A different route, but yeah. the yeah. same, the same. Right. And that concludes part two of a three-part series with John W. Thompson on the Series B Show. Um, in part three, John discusses after 28 years leaving IBM to become CEO of Symantec, and at Symantec, ultimately having one of the most successful runs at that time of a tech company and cementing himself in the Forbes highest paid CEO list in one year, uh, making over $70 million. Um, he talks about his strategy for running the company, some of the biggest challenges he faced, and also some of the things he did outside of the company, such as chairing Microsoft's board of directors. Uh, we discussed a little bit about his current passions and what he's focusing on in the future. So definitely stay tuned. You'll, you'll really enjoy it.